0: This talk was recorded at the 2019 Actuarial Society of South Africa Convention at the Santon Convention Centre. For more information on the Actuarial Society, visit actuarialsociety.org.za.
1: Good morning everybody and welcome to the first plenary session today. Uh, Not plenary session, concurrent session rather, or the first session today. I hope that uh, people aren't nursing any too um, uh, much lack of sleep from partying too hard last night, but uh, I think it was a good event yesterday for those of you who were there. Um, So we're here. If you're wanting to make sure that you're in the right session, we're in the transformation session. We have two sessions where uh, the first one is talking about privilege and how actuaries spend their income with Carol Vandrach and Lusani Malduzzi. And then uh, a second session on conversations with actuaries, sharing their unique journeys to, uh, to, to becoming actuaries. So I'm not going to take up any more time. I'm going to pass over to Carol to take us into the first session. Thank you, Carol.
2: Thanks, Peter, and good morning, everybody. Uh, I've never had a huge ambition to present at a, as a convention. However, I am passionate about restoring human dignity and I believe um, that touches on the core of the transformation journey that the profession have in, has in embarked on in the past two or three years. Uh, so here I am, you're stuck with me for the next 20 minutes or so. Starting with a disclaimer, I do group um, data and numbers in, in my presentation. The idea is not to stereotype anybody, but rather to, to present the trends. In any group there will be exceptions and, and um, people not really behaving like, like the group, but I'm trying to, to, to show trends. It was also um, quite difficult to gauge the, the level of information that I should ask for in the survey. Um, Income and spending habits is for most people a very personal thing, but still I needed to get some information. I was not fully uh, successful in in, in how I did it. One of my senior colleagues actually told me that he exited uh, the survey at some point because it got too personal for him. So thanks to those of you that actually stuck the whole course. Then on the graphs, the graphics in the presentation, it's been inspired by uh, a TED talk by Mona lobby you can Google her. She's a data journalist at The Guardian. Um, her talk is about three ways to spot a bad statistic. Hopefully you, you don't spot any bad statistics, but the, this, the, the, the drawings in the presentation, I just want to give credit to a good friend, and architect, Zerkai. Uh, he helped me um, with the graphs that you'll see in the presentation. Um, You'll see some numbers in the presentation, but actually my message is not about the numbers, it's about the conversation. Um, That the numbers should stimulate, the thoughts it should stimulate, and hopefully um, making you eager to have some conversations when you walk out here today. Quickly, how I got to this point, I attended most of the asset transformation workshops. The one on privilege, rank, and power was quite powerful. And um, part of that was a privileged questionnaire that I'll get to just now. That started me thinking on on our different journeys and our different histories. And I got curious about the individual stories behind that. And I'll share one or two of that. Two of those stories comes from um, two young colleagues of mine at Sunlam. They both started working beginning of uh, last year. Both come from an underprivileged background. But quite different reasons, quite different motivations for why they uh, <coughs> chose to, to study actuarial. The one study, started his actuarial studies with the sole purpose to improve his parents' living conditions, get them to a better home, get them to a better no- neighborhood. The other one um, wanted to become an actuary so that he can buy himself a nice BMW. But, In the past 18 months, that journey has also moved on, and I'll I'll share a bit about about that. I'll I'll refer back to him a couple of times during the presentation. So how do actually spend their money? And the question is more, what are the differences, rather than if there are any differences. We're all um, individual human beings with individual preferences, and um, I'm also curious about, I was curious about, is there any, any correlation with our historical backgrounds in, term of, in terms of privilege, how we grew up. So about a year ago, ASA ran a survey. Um, we, we had to do two rounds. The first round there was a technical glitch with some of re- the respondents. Uh, so thanks to those of you that actually did the survey the second time, in the end we ended up with almost 300 usable responses. The survey and also how I um, present the results was structured in a section on demographics, then the privilege questionnaire was embedded in the survey, uh, section about spending patterns, and then also support to extended family members. Digging into the demographics, this is what the distribution of the respondents looked like. I also got ASSA membership stats from VIM, and this shows that the, the, the respondents is, is biased, weighted towards fellow members. Based on the, the size of the sample and the distribution of the, the professional membership, I would have expected about 100 fellows. So the, the results is a bit skewed towards the opinions and experiences of actuaries, qualified actuaries. Age distribution, pretty much in line with the ASA membership. You see we've got a fairly young membership most of them below the age of 34. Male-female split, again, based on the ESA membership, I would have expected about 85 females, so it seems that um, the ladies are more, more keen to participate in ASSA surveys. Race distribution, uh, more or less in line with ESA membership, bit weighted towards white respondents, um, but if you Break that down um, between the, the, the qualified members. This is a proportional slide, the previous one was numbers, um, split by race. Our current qualified actuary membership, 77% white members, but quite encouraging if you look at that split for our student membership, um, 48% black members, and I think that bodes well for the future demographics of the profession, given that uh, the, the the pace and level of qualification um, is more or less the same again this the the student and the fellow distribution is very much in line with the ASA membership, so the overall skewness is more about the, the other membership categories the technical members the the um, associate members. I had a question on breadwinner status, so this shows that the actuaries earn quite a bit. Of the income in their household so hundred and thirty five members with that 's the sole breadwinner so they they earn one hundred percent of the household income for those that shared breadwinners um, the respondents on average are responsible for fifty seven percent of the household income so I think yeah looking at the at this slide, the respondents should be qualified to answer questions about spending patterns, although maybe the earners and the spenders are not exactly the same. Maybe I should have asked the spouses and the children about the spending patterns to get a more accurate picture. Uh, this is just a scan of the privileged questionnaire that I completed at the, work, at the workshop. So 20 questions asking about race, gender, the number of books in the home you grew up in, Were your family able to provide for your education, medical aid, um, membership? 20 questions, admittedly uh, subjective questions, but still, I think, giving giving a good indication of the relative levels of privilege that each of us grew up with. Uh, Moving on. So the... Results of the the privileged questionnaire gives a score between minus 20 and plus 20, where minus 20 is from a very unprivileged background, plus 20 very privileged. Um, For purpose of simplicity, I've grouped it into three bands for most of the slides, more or less three even splits between the minus 20 to, to plus 20 range, so underprivileged, neutral in the middle, and very privileged, and you'll see that in the slides. So this is the privilege distribution of the respondents, the almost 300 respondents. So on the left-hand slide, on the, on the left-hand side, minus 20 underprivileged, right-hand side. So you will see that the, our membership is, is quite skewed towards a privileged background. But then, looking at the non-white members, significant move towards the left to a less privileged background. And then, this is the picture for the white members even more skewed towards the right hand side. Interesting one I ask about home ownership and car ownership. So in the three categories under neutral and very between 53 and 74% of respondents owning their own homes and also showing the level of debt, not the level of debt, the proportion of respondents in every category that that still have debt on their house. So similar debt levels um, but different levels of ownership. Core ownership, the same thing. Um, fairly high levels of core ownership, still about sixty percent debt in the on, on cars in the underprivileged group. Maybe maybe talking to, to that colleague that wanted to buy his BMW. Next question of the next section of the survey was on spending patterns, so I listed 22 items and I wanted to, to make the list as complete as possible, but we all have blind spots working with Sunlam, I left out life insurance on the spending, <laughs> spending list, so confession, and that's it. Then I, so I, I listed the items and I asked the respondents to rank the top six items every month that they spend their regular income on. Just the top six rank them between those twenty two items and also the same question on additional income for example annual bonus or share options exercised and they are only asked to rank the top four because I think that spending is more discretionary so there, there should be more variability in that so looking at the results of that how how do we spend our income first I I, I'm going to show you the ranking of the top six items for regular monthly income. First one is housing, so that's mortgage payments or rent. Second one, household needs groceries, cleaning materials, stuff like that. And this one uh, is not, not so respondent. A third place, uh, savings and investments, then healthcare, medical aid contributions, hospital doctor's cost. Transport and in sixth place car payments. So then looking at the same ranking but bro- broken down between the three groups, three privileged banks. For the very privileged group, the four first four spots exactly the same as the overall distribution. Then utilities, water and electricity. So it's a very privileged group with the big houses using a lot of, of water and electricity, or it might just be that there's been a lot of Cape Town respondents so this the server was run at the end of the, the drought in Cape Town when water was very expensive. It's not that much cheaper now. Um, sixth place transport. A neutral group, very much the same as overall. It's only the third and fourth place that swap uh, between healthcare and, and, and savings. And then where it got interesting was in the underprivileged band. First two places still, housing and and groceries, household needs, but then in the next place, car payments. So I ran the the results past a couple of colleagues and one of the the, the underprivileged colleagues made, made a comment that said, maybe that's because the privileged kids start working with a car when they go to varsity, most of them do get cars, but if you're from an underprivileged background, you only start earning and being able to, to purchase a car when you, when you start working and then in the next place fourth place is extended family didn't feature in any place in, 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 in any of the other bands so speaking to, to what a lot of people call black tax, and in my conversation with colleagues, um, you are a very very real. Um, pressure, cultural pressure to, to have that kind of spending. I'll, I'll get back to one or two anecdotes on that a bit later. Fifth place, healthcare and, and lost transport costs. Then I thought, because the, the extended family spending is such an outlier in the, the underprivileged group, just to see how they ranked for the other groups. So the underprivileged group came in fourth place. Overall, 12th place. The very privileged group, eighteenth out of twenty-two, and the neutral group, um, extended family support was in ninth place. So, so, same same kind of story, but for additional income, how do do people spend their, their bonuses, their, their share options? First place, investments and savings. We are actuaries, after all. Next one is overseas holidays. In third place. Uh, that's the South African flag, local holidays, and finally um, housing, so maybe additional payments on on your mortgage. For the very privileged band, the picture looked exactly the same, same order. Neutral band, first two places the same, then in third place housing, and finally actually extended family support. For the underprivileged group, savings and investments, still first place, but in second place, the the, giving giving some of that additional income to extended family then housing and finally groceries and i haven't this fourth one the groceries household needs was a surprising one for me and I haven't had time to interrogate that so maybe afterwards if there's some thoughts from the audience on that I'd love to hear that again the comparison for extended family support second place for under sixth place for all thirteenth place for the very and fourth place for the neutral group. So just looking at um, where there are contributions towards extended family. So this slide is for the the non-white respondents in the survey. You can see quite a significant proportion of the regular monthly income going to extended family. The little money bags next to the, the groups Show the average proportion of monthly income going to the extended family. So you can see that's between 15 and 20% of regular monthly income. For the white group, quite a different picture, although where there are extended family supports, similar level of support between 15 and 20% of regular income. I also had questions um, on the same, same questions uh, on, on extended family support. Um, For for additional income, the the picture looked pretty much the same, so I'm not going to show that. Then the number of dependents outside your own household. So the question was outside your own household, on average, how many um, people do you support in extended family? So non-white respondents, underprivileged group, almost three people. Neutral group, 1.6, and just below one for the very privileged non-white members. And this, is, this has been confirmed by a conversation with my, with my young colleague, between, as I, as I said, between um, himself and his uncle, that's a teacher, they support seven family members. So between the two of them, on average, three and a half uh, members they, they, family members they support. For the white group, again, quite a bit different picture, um, about a half or 1.4 where there are support. So some conclusions, just um, my own personal conclusions. Yes, there are differences in spending patterns between actuaries and and, and actuarial students. Yes, there seems to be a correlation with privilege, but the reasons for that are much wider and deeper than the obvious. Speaking to my young colleague, he started off his actuarial journey with wanting to buy himself a new BMW. He um, since moved on from that. Initially, the extended family support was quite a burden to him. He, had, he wanted to do a four-year university degree, wanted to do his honours, but after three years, the support from his family to start earning was just so big, he had to, to cut short his studies and start working. Um, but now, he says, um, it's actually considered considers it an honor to support his family and being able to give back to his community. And obviously, different people with different stories and, and different journeys. Um, so we need more conversations on this and, and more action. As a white male coming from a fairly privileged background, it's difficult for me to understand the cultural presu- pressures. I also helped my parents to purchase their retirement home that they wouldn't have been able to afford otherwise, but it was my own choice. I didn't have any pressure from them or extended family. In my discussions with with people from an underprivileged background, they say the cultural pressure to support is just so big, if you don't do that, you run a big risk of being ostracized by your family and considered a, a very unwelcome person in the family. So some practical tips, where do we go from here? I think we should stop shouting from our corners. Of, of, often conversations like this just get, get us more divided. Um, working with actuaries, I think I should rather say stop withdrawing into our corners and start having more conversations. Conversations on an individual level. And in my pre- prep for this presentation, I stumbled across another TED Talk by Megan Phelps Roper. Uh, she recently published the book, Unfollow. She grew up in a Uh, Westboro Baptist Church in the States, that's famous or maybe rather infamous for picketing against gays, against Jews, against the military, against anyone, and she had a sign in her hand when she was five years old, death to all gays, and at the age of 26, she left the church and she, she wrote a book and did a tech talk on her experiences, and I think she gives four very practical and very useful tips for these conversations. First one is don't assume bad intent. The fact that someone has a different opinion than you or an, an often very polar, polar opposite of your own epi, opinion don't mean they have bad intent. Then ask questions. Try to understand and also give the other party the opportunity to ask questions to you. Stay calm. When emotions go up, uh, reason and logic tend to leave the room and then make the argument. Uh, often when you are so convinced that you are right, you think it must also be obvious to everybody else and you don't make the effort to make the argument. Um, yeah, so, so read her book, look, watch her talk, very, very useful. Then we also need to have the conversations on a corporate level. Often we just tolerate each other in a corporate environment, but that's the people we spend most of our awake time with and I think we need to have more of these conversations with our colleagues. Then there's a couple of industry-related questions that I think we should ask. I'm not going too deep into them. Medical aid beneficiaries, stories about adopted children not being able to to join uh, the medical aid fund. My young colleague want, wanted to put his his mother that had to get cancer treatment on his medical aid fund. He couldn't do, the, do that because of pre-existing conditions. And I'm not saying those, con- those conditions are wrong. I just think we... We come from a background where the rules, the pension fund rules, the medical aid fund rules, don't necessarily take into account the the, um, background of a lot of our members. Pension fund rules, are they accommodating enough for the picture of extended family support that a lot of pension fund members um, have have to live with? Then also our HR policies, our employee assistance programs for our employees, our colleagues, with this big, big pressure from their families, do we do enough to support them in that? Um, You can think there's obvious implications for your own household, your own wealth building over your own lifetime if there's big, big pressure from your family to to send 15 or 20 percent of your monthly income away every month and not on how you want to plan it or how you would have preferred to do that. So in the end, this presentation is full of information, but hopefully it leads to some transformation. Um, I hope that I've encouraged you to have some conversations based on on this material. The presentation will will be available afterwards. And I'm just leaving you with with the thought that Jeremy Gardner also had in his session yesterday in this venue um, these past two days. There's a lot of power and a lot of influence present here, but how do we use our power and our influence? Do we, are we willing to lay down our position of power and engage in these conversations and see how we can use our power and influence, not only to transform and better our profession, but also our society at large? Thank you very much.
3: And good morning to everyone. I'm quite impressed that uh, for a nine o'clock session uh, that we have so many of you here. Um, it's very difficult to see this kind of thing in, in, in Cape Town. <laughs> 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 yeah, there's too much traffic there. The less cars in Hauden, I think uh, the how train helps a lot in that regard. Do we have my presentation? My, my talk is about uh, casting the net wider. Um, it links to... The, the conversation that we've had now uh, in that not only do we need to understand each other and where we come from and, 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 and not just focus on the numbers, uh, you, you're getting more black people in and, and, and so on, but that but, but there's actually value in that. There's value in diversity for us to, to build the profession. And, and actually, we should be more diverse, uh, not just in terms of, um, of, of, of race, but all the boxes that one can tick. And um, and later on, um, I'll I'll speak about another um, uh, demographic categorization that is becoming a lot more relevant in many circles um, uh, for us to understand uh, different generations. Um, And and, and one one response that one can have to to, to transformation or, or, or is actually to not want it to actually remain as the crowd that we were. Uh, you see it in workplaces, uh, and I mean, you can even see it in, 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 in social settings that we do tend to gravitate um, to our own. That, but that's a very natural uh, human reaction. But I think as a, as a, as a, as a society, um, we need to value diversity, not as a, a must, uh, but, but, but as, a, as, a, as an imperative, as something that will make us a, a much stronger profession. Um, the, the strategic intent of, our, of, 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 of the society, which we'll, we'll discuss again uh, later when we do the, 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 the presidential address, and, 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 and Peter has, has done so on a number of occasions. Uh, one of the things is to attract and, and retain best talent. And we need to, we, we've been doing that almost uh, automatically, but uh, we are being challenged by other professions as well. So we need to understand how we need to uh, keep the, on, on, on the front foot in terms of that. Um, And then uh, to enhance the student engagement, uh, have a sense of belonging by all students. As you can see how the demographics of the students are uh, changing. And and position us as a a global leader in context-based solutions, I won't spend too much time on that here. Um, And then obviously continue to do what we are known for and what we've been good at doing over the uh, last number of years. In terms of the, um, the, the demographics, what, what I was going to show was um, you know, a pie chart that shows how the, 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 the distribution of the fellows look like for the different racial groups and also that of the associates. And the reason why I do that um, is because of the targets that we we, we, we have imposed on ourselves and, and we need to reflect on um, you know, are we on the right track or not. Um, so so you, as you can imagine when you look at the fellows, he mentioned it here, uh, it would still look um, um, is, uh, predominantly um, uh, white and, and the associates as well looking the same. But what is encouraging is that when you look at the students, um, that has shifted quite a lot. Um, where you have close to 50% uh, being black, and then you, 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 you can add on that. Um, so, so that is improving, and, and when you look at the, the students that have been in the profession or in our database for over 10 years, um, that, that is still reflecting a, a similar picture, somewhat a bit less, to that of the, of the, of the, of the fellows. Now, what what is concerning, um, and and, and, and these three slides that I'm not showing now, I will show them uh, in a a later session so you can then remember some of the aspects here, is the pass rates. Uh, that, that is not encouraging. The, the pass rates of the, of the, of the black students is, is way lower than that of the, the Indian group and, and, and the white group and, and, and so on, so so that is something that makes it difficult. So although the student population looks at uh, about 50%, that's not what you're gonna see reflecting uh, at the end of the day, which is a concern. So, so although, although um, we have had the, the academy, and uh, there is a slide where we show the impact of the, of the academy, In the initial days, we had a very uh, big impact on your A311, which is the the so-called CA1, um, and and your communication subject, and and some of the the technical subjects, um, where we we had a very good impact in the initial stages. In this last set of uh, results, um, we had a much bigger impact uh, on the the senior level subjects, your F2s and, and, and F1s, in a sense that we would want to see that happening. But but what is worrying is that we have gone backwards in terms of the the communications and uh, and, 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 and the the assets and liabilities as well as uh, some of the technical subjects. But with the technical subjects, there was a bit of the the introduction of the computer element that that also, I think, uh, had an impact on on the results. We would want to see those improving so that we maintain um, the, the, the pass rates to be at the, at the level that would ensure that the student population would then be reflected uh, in uh, in, in, the, in the numbers, so the percentage or proportion of, of, of fellows and, and associates. And the reason why I, I speak that language is because we had said to ourselves, 2028 um, would have a, the percentage of our masters qualifying would reflect the demographics of the country, um, and and in 20. Uh, 33, that the percentage of uh, fathers qualifying will reflect the demographics of the country. So, so one can see that with well, how the results were in the last year, because I'm trying to do a bit of an analysis of surplus here, and you can see that um, we've gone backwards. Uh, we, we're not closer to that goal. Um, so, so that is something that we need to reflect on. So what do we do? Do we change the targets um, and say, now this this were never going to be achievable, or do we put in much more effort? and what does that kind of effort look like? And and those are the kind of conversations that we have in the Transformation Committee. Hence, the the, the title of this presentation, Casting the Net Wider. Um, And and one needs to understand, I mean, are there other professionals out there who have already done well that can be attracted into the profession and have a much faster track um, uh, to qualification? Those are the kind of things that we're exploring. And uh, um, uh, I'm quite positive that in the next uh, year or so, uh, we would have a lot more initiatives along those lines. So let's understand our background, where we come from, and let's appreciate that, because that is the strength of our profession. Uh, a monocultural profession, uh, I, I would not add, I, I, my view is that it won't add as much value as uh, a multicultural one or um, uh, can to this country. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you, Carl and, and, and Lusani. Uh, I think uh, two things come out to me from, from these discussions, and some people do feel that I'm a little bit of a broken record uh, talking about transformation. Transformation is not about the numbers alone. It's also about the, the heart and minds of getting us to understand how valuable transformation is both to the profession but also to the organizations within which we work. So I will continue to beat the drum that we need to have more of these conversations, more of these engagements, because it's as we engage with one another that we start to appreciate the differences. And all of the statistics that I've seen show that diverse leadership teams, diverse groups are more powerful, more effective than teams that are monocultural. And so we need to continue to develop that within our profession, and we need to continue to uh, ensure that we have these conversations going forward. Um, And I think the four tips that were in uh, Carl's presentation about that uh, are very valuable ones for us to to do. But we have a few moments to have any questions. So there's one at the front here. Do We have microphones. So um, if you want to give your question, speak loud and I'll try and repeat the question if we, if we have to.
3: Um, for Lusani, uh, I was just uh, interested if we'd also explored um, what is happening in other professions with regards to transformation and specifically where
1: there have been, I guess, success stories in being able to, to change the demographic. I, I, just before you answer, I just want to thank you both for the presentation, it was, I, I really enjoyed it. It was something that inspired conversations um, and I also believe that um, a diverse leadership or a diverse
3: organisation or, or profession is going to be uh, more valuable to us than a monocultural one.
1: Are there any other questions? We would take a couple if there are, otherwise I don't see any out there, at the, oh, there is one right in front of you there and there's another one at the back so go ahead Um, yeah thank you for a very interesting presentation Um, so just maybe a comment for Carl so um, it was sad to hear about your young colleague um, whose mother was refused medical aid so just maybe a comment on that that medical aid cannot legally refuse color from someone so maybe they can follow up again on that um, and then the second comment is for Dasani. Um Do you perhaps feel that writing an exam and passing an
3: exam is the best way to produce a <laughs> is, is it because you are struggling to pass exams?
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay, let me take one more question at the back there.
4: Hello. Yeah, thanks. Uh, just for Dasani, I'm quite worried that the pass rates are going down. And have we then checked the pass rates at universities or correlates to that? And then even further back correlating to the pass rates sort of going back to standard eight or grade 10, matric um, pupils coming through to high school, all of that. Have we correlated that in any way over the past 10 years?
3: So Nassani, do you want to take yeah. those, those three um, questions? The, the first one, I think the accountants um, would provide the best template or, for success in this area. I think they've really uh, done well um, to, 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 to diversify that profession. And uh, one of the things that they did, which uh, was, I came to know about it around 2010, 2011, was they, they also ensured that the f- historically black universities um, have accounting programs that are strong Uh, that will produce uh, um, CAs, and and those programs have been doing so. Um, I was informed that the latest one to join those ranks is the the University of Venda, where where I come from. Um, So some of the first ones will have been, uh, yes, UWC, yes, uh, Fort Hay, and the University of the North. And we are exploring um, a similar idea, although we do have, uh, obviously, challenges, because there are funding issues that I didn't go into detail Um, at the current six programs that we do accredit. But there's an, there's a, there's a, how can I put it, there's an acknowledgement that um, at a certain higher level, there may need, be, there may need to be, uh, there is a need to introduce uh, actuarial science at some of the others. So, so maybe not a fully fledged program to start off with, but uh, introduction of some of the, 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 the initial subjects at a higher level. Where students have already proven, um, you know, have been already successful in some of the mathematical and mathematical statistics subject, the, the idea is to look for talent wherever talent can be found, um, and, and and what is said is that uh, some of the kids just haven't had the exposure to the right kind of training, mathematics and so on, and and they start getting that when they go to university. Uh, they are lucky enough to get a very good lecturer from Ghana or somewhere <laughs> um, and, 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 and do, it. so, so it's that kind of thing. Wherever talent can be found, we need to go there. And, and if we can find it from people who have already chosen other professions but are very good and can be good, we need to find a way to get them in as well. So, so those are the kind of things. And then in terms of the universities, so, so we would look at those that sign up first year um, at university. Uh, it would reflect a certain uh, demographic di- distribution, uh, which uh, increasingly is becoming you know, predominantly black. But the throughput of the past rates at university are just as shocking. Um, so so they, 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 that, that changes quite, um, quite a lot towards the end. But the the fact that we are seeing the the number of graduates within our ranks, uh, um, uh, the proportion of that becoming more black, it it means that there is some level of improvement but it's still not at the level that one would want to see. And and for example, I think if one uh, would go and look at the honors classes, and we have looked at that, but um, I mean there's a certain kind of analysis that would still need to be done, but uh, you would see that some some of the honors classes, um, and we do have that data, um, used to be predominantly white. Um, but in some of the uh, universities that is also changing a bit. I know, for instance, the vet class of 2018, for the first time was predominantly black. Uh, it used to be, uh, historically, it used to be predominantly white. So, so there are changes there. But, but like, like, like we showed, uh, well, I, didn't, I couldn't show the, 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 the graph. Uh, the the pass rates, though, um, at the different levels um, uh, is worrying and something that we need to, it needs to be at the same level for us to achieve the goals that we want to achieve. You can you can volunteer to do some of that analysis for us. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't have to comment to Mohammed. Uh, he, 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 yeah. I, I think we, we we are a profession. Uh, we we want to be able to give you meaningful designations. Um, so so we would encourage you to, to go as far as you can. But what what part of the strategy is to have a, a number of exit points? Um, given that th- th- there needs to be diversity also in terms of what one is interested in doing. Mm. So, so not everyone necessarily needs to be a fellow. Um, you know, it's, and, and some of us are becoming fellows in areas where we're not even working. So what is the value of that? So, so, so you know, a, a, an associate who an actually, <coughs> by international standards, may be a suitable exit point for some people. But for some, they probably need to go all the way to becoming a fellow. And you now have the TASA as well, which is more the technical component. And we need to make sure that the TASA is strong, and competitive out there, especially from a data science perspective. So if you are interested just in that, perhaps that can be an exit point. But but, but obviously for certain levels of work, um, being a fellow would still be what is required.
1: So I'll take one last question, given the context of time. Carol
2: thanks for the comment about a medical aid I couldn't hear everything of uh, that you said but maybe we can we can continue the discussion afterwards just uh, something that I forgot to mention in my presentation I've had some questions from people asking isn't the differences that I see between the different privileged bands not just because or partly at least partly because of a function of age of different different um, in the, in the different categories. And actually, when I looked at the, at the stats there, between the three bands, the under, neutral and very privileged, it's not that much different, respectively, the average age in every band is 31, 33 and 37 years, so not that much difference. Cool.
5: Thank you.
2: And then just final well, comment on your um, yours about diverse teams, yes, diverse teams perform better, but then the, 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 the members in that team need to value and appreciate each
1: other oh, if they absolutely. just tolerate each other then. Yeah. No, absolutely.
0: Thanks, Carl and Lissani for your talk. Um, Lissani, my question is more for you, um, although I think it stems from Carl's last comment. Have you uh, looked into how employer support at a student level as well as employer culture has sort of aided or deterred the sort of
1: transformation we're hoping to see.
3: Should I answer that. Yeah, I
1: think okay. it's the last, the last question special. we must take because we um, we've got to go on to the other section, and right. I'm mindful of taking okay. their time.
3: So 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 there's an analysis that Mike, McDoug- Mike McDougall, our CEO, does um, every every after every um, uh, the exam results. And, and he then one of the things that he looks at is the different employers, uh, the consultancies, and so on, and, and you do see differences there. So whether it's uh, the selection issue that some do pick uh, the, the, the best candidates to start off with, or whether it's the study policy, uh, the fact is that th- those results are, are, are different. What? 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 What is telling, though, is that those that tend to go into wider fields or go into banking and so on where there's less support, we know that there's less support in some of those areas. The performance is also um, quite poor, generally, in in those areas. So I think support is definitely important. Uh, Mm. The the employer culture, uh, attitude towards studies and so on is is, is definitely instrumental. So if we ever lose that, uh, if we ever lose that support from the the ATOs, the employers, uh, it would be um, very bad for the profession.
1: Okay, I'm going to cut it there and make uh, the, the, the chairman's privilege for one, one last comment. Um, I had the privilege on uh, Monday evening of the uh, new fellow qualifiers dinner and it was so encouraging to see there a significantly more diverse group of new fellows coming through than I've ever seen in the four years that I've been involved in, in that. So I think that there are natural dynamics happening, but I think there's also a definite need for a lot more uh, engagement, conversation, support, uh, and building one another up in, in this process. So to Carol and Lusani, thank you for your comments and your input. And if I can ask you to leave the stage and the other four to come on stage, please. <clears throat> While they're coming up, I want to just acknowledge um, that we live in a, a part of the world that thrives on storytelling. And I think that we we remember stories, and, and the the power of individual stories is always very encouraging uh, to, to hear. And so I'm really looking forward to what Vivek, Jasmine, Rowan, and Spek, I hope I pronounced that right, <laughs> I have to share with us. And so with that, I'm going to hand it straight over to Vivek.
4: Hello, everyone. So um, welcome to part two of the ASA transformation session. So Carl almost um, did a good warmer for us, you know, saying we need to have more conversations. So today we're going to have conversations with three awesome actuaries. So anyway, um, like Carl, I want to do um, a feel-good session at the convention. I've done two technical ones before. And the feel-good ones are the tough ones for you guys. I mean, you guys are actually, you guys danced last night quite a lot, which is transformational. But I mean, the soft stuff is actually quite awkward for all of us. I mean, I, I always laugh. I mean, like 77% of the, of the audience um, feels awkward when you talk about transformation. You know, almost, when you talk about white privilege, people feel uncomfortable. You know, But today's conversation is not about privilege, actually. Um, so I've been working for 20 years now, and I've had the privilege of actually working with some really awesome people. Um, and we talk about negative stories all the time. I mean, the media talks about white privilege, brown privilege, and radical economic empowerment. Um, but we don't talk about good stories. I mean, the, 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 the accountancy profession celebrates their, um, their accountants. We talk about technical topics, but where's the good stories out there? You know, where's the really inspirational ones? I've heard about somebody who qualified after writing fellowship eleven times. I hear about it at the, in, the, in the corridors, but we don't hear about them here. You know, um, today's story is about Elon Musk. Um, it's about somebody who grew up in a rural area. It's about somebody who had three girls and two write exams at the same time. Um, and these are inspirational stories. These are what the masses need to hear about, not just the technical topics only. Um, and they give us hope. They give us inspiration as well. So anyway. Um, 15 years ago, um, say 14 years ago, I qualified. It was a really big thing to become an actuary. You know, we always sort of boasted about how we're smart in accountants, um, you know, and that was a big thing. You know, it was funny, but it was a really big thing to become an actuary. 14 years later, it's still a big thing. It unifies all of us, whether you're black or white or Indian, you all are here for one reason. We want to be actuaries, and we study really, really hard because we want to become actuaries. And all of us on this panel, are all we have different journeys, different conversations, and different um, challenges along the way. Um, and The one thing I've learned in 20 years is don't make assumptions, you know. And I mean, it's like, we, we make assumptions for a living here, <laughs> you know, so, but tell you guys don't make assumptions it's pretty tough, you know. Um, you know I've got friends that have gone to, to Hilton and the bishops, and when you actually hear their stories, actually it's not what you think it is. It's not as simple as he's a white guy, he went to bishops, he went to Hilton. And, and is in actual, or oh, you're a black person, and, and this is your journey. All the journeys are very, very different. But today, you'll hear about three great ones. Um, let me not take up much more of your time. Um, so, anyway, storytelling it's, a, it's, a, it's an ancient tool, it brings people together. As I said, it's a softer topic, it brings people together, listen to their stories, and, uh, and today, lend us your ears. Um, before I hand over to Spear, Spare so comes from KwaZulu, Natal. It's our very first convention. She's qualified, actually. And so please give her an especially great welcome.
5: Good morning, everyone. Uh, I'm very excited to come here and share my story. My name is Sipeleli Siwe Msane. You think space is tough, but I challenge anyone who's not Zulu to say that name. Um, I grew up in Gwelezane, I was one of five children. My father was a teacher. My mother started out a domestic worker and ended up having to sell sweets at my primary school uh, for a living, Uh, all of which I'm very grateful for because it brought me to where I am today. I finished my high school at a rural area in Kozulu Natal where I had to share a hut with about seven other girls uh, after school, every day, we'd have to go to fetch water from the borehole because we didn't have running water, and um, we had to prepare our meals in small primer stoves, if you know what that means. So load shedding has been quite a flashback. <laughs> um, so yeah, um, so it's no wonder that when I found out about the chair profession and the sort of opportunities, it opens up for one, um, just not for personal development, but also for Uh, giving a platform to make an impact in society that I was instantly attracted to it and I'd found my purpose. I worked very hard to ace all my subjects in matric, and I managed to get sponsorship, which I'm very grateful for, to go to UCT to study actuarial science. I jetted off on a flight for the very first time, headed off to Cape Town, I was very excited. And uh, there were a lot more firsts for me on that day. Uh, one of which I remember was just ringing through my mind as I was queuing up uh, to be admitted into race was uh, it was my first time next to making casual conversation in English and um, it, it sounds like a joke but it, it, it really was uh, one of the biggest challenges I'd faced in my academic career I mean uh, just adapting to being taught in English even the, tutor, the tutors were in English Uh, which was meant to be the support structure that UCT was providing students. But you know what? I realized it was a challenge, but it wasn't a challenge unique to me. So I had to adapt and I had to adapt very quickly because my livelihood depended on it. I couldn't afford to lose my sponsor, and my parents certainly couldn't afford to put me through varsity. So I made it through that year. I made it through the next and the next, and I graduated, uh, which gave me one of the... Proudest moments of my life when I too was able to take my parents on a flight for their first time to UCT as I received my my degree. Uh, soon after that, I had my first child, got married into a very traditionally Zulu family uh, to my high school sweetheart, um, and I had my other two girls, my daughters. Uh, I must tell you, being a mother and Odi just brought a whole new host of challenges and responsibilities into the mix. I mentioned just one for an example. Uh, I stayed in Durban. It's about 200 k's away from from where I'd married. Um, And every weekend, there would be something. It's, It's just the nature of the culture. There would be a funeral. There'd be a wedding. There'd be some sort of ceremony. And in that culture, it's unheard of to use catering. Uh, It's almost expected that the community would come together, help prepare the meal for the ceremony, and everyone in the community would come. So that's the sort of uh, time and the sort of investment you had to put into the community, which was sort of part of the challenge. Uh, I still wanted it all. I wanted to embrace my culture as I love it so much. I wanted to embrace being a mother and umakoti, and I still wanted to qualify as an actuary. So I uh, didn't want anything to slow me down. I went on and wrote my exams. Uh, unfortunately, that means that uh, I had to stay after hours uh, at work, studying very hard for long hours, missing bath time, missing bedtime for my kids. But this was a sacrifice I had to make in order for me to have the time on the weekends, uninterrupted, spending with my family and my community. I, through all of that, I struggled very hectically with the F-100s, and uh, it's one thing that I'd like to mention for some of the young uh, people in the audience who are still struggling through the exams, because there's, there's almost three things that really helped me get through that journey. One, it was the exam counselling, and I have to applaud Atha for having such structures in place, and we almost have to work on improving them uh, through uh, feedback from students. There was a light bulb moment for me, because after I had struggled so much with the STs, I, I just, it just clicked, and I got it, what the examiners were looking for, and I, I passed the ST. And the next one that I wrote, I got first time as well. Um, and the second one, which was advice from my mentor, was that uh, if you still have a lot of subjects to go, just pair up the more practical and the more technical ones, which you use to, to writing, with the... With the more complex, unlike the STs, which most people struggle with, so that you feel like you're getting that momentum. You're still in the race, small victories, though, so where you fail the ST, you're still passing one of the more practical exams. And you, you, still, you don't feel discouraged, and you feel like you can still continue to achieve your goal. Um, and the third one was just the immense support that I received throughout this journey. Um, I remember one uh, event in particular. I had to drive from Durban to Pretoria to write my modeling exam because no flight would take me. I was too far along in my pregnancy. And being spare, I really didn't want anything to slow me down. So I had to write that exam. Um, and my husband had to drive me to Pretoria. And uh, it's not just my husband, the support from my husband. It's the support from uh, the sponsors that I got. It's the support from the nannies who took care of my kids when I was studying the nights away. Uh, it's, it's one of the biggest challenges. I must say, which I found in my adulthood, is that um, being from the outskirts of, of KZN, being from the rural areas or the townships, you name it, you're you, you sort of removed from your community and that natural support structure. So you almost have to build your own. You take whatever support you can get, and sometimes it can be expensive because you have to pay for it, but you, you make do, and uh, if you've got a vision, you make a plan. And you make it work. And uh, here I am. Uh, last year, the last session of last year, I, at eight months pregnant yet again, because I have to have my babies. I loved having a big family. At eight months pregnant, I wrote and passed my last exam. And uh, I, I, I can't tell you. I mean, I make, I make a joke about it now. But my invigilator was so nervous at the time, because he, he didn't know what protocol was if I was to go into delivery. Uh, but I told him, you know what, this baby's going to have to wait for mummy to finish her exams so that I could, feel, I could give her my whole uh, attention. And uh, one thing I told myself going to the exam room is that I've got two kids and I'm pregnant. If I think and, and I'm not willing to try this exam in this situation. it definitely would be more challenging to try it with two kids and an infant. So by the grace of God, I I did pass that exam, and I am here. I have a big family. I'm embracing Bingumagoti and a mother. And uh, whoever said you can't have it all, think again. Uh, So that's my last words. I'll give it over to Jasmine.
0: Morning, everyone. I'm Jasmine Vanskalkveik. I'm married. I have three daughters, and I'm also an actuary who took about 14 years to qualify, so I'll just share a bit about my journey. When I matriculated, I had no idea that the actuarial profession existed. I did fairly well in math and accounting at school, and I considered becoming an accountant, um, but I was also involved in some light community work in my latter high school years, and I think it was that that actually led me to register for a degree in social work at UWC. So it was a four-year degree. Um, The first two years were fairly theoretical and the course became a bit more practical from the third year onwards. And I remember at the start of the third year I was assigned a case and um, through that experience I actually got a better feel for what a career in social work would entail. And I couldn't see myself doing that on a full-time basis. I dropped out of university in my third year. I had to get a job, um, and I managed to secure employment at an insurance company. I was appointed as a junior claims administrator. Um, I then moved on to the employee benefits administration team, and I think it was there that I actually had to work with actuaries, so I was exposed to the actuarial profession in that role. Um, A position then opened up in the employee benefits actuarial team, and they were looking for more of an actuarial admin support type of person, so I applied for that position, and I was successful. Um, as part of that appointment, I was required to do an in-house life contingency and compound interest course, It was really difficult. Um, but it was also interesting and challenging in a good way, uh, and I felt, you know, it spoke to some of my strengths. So I had some conversations with the actuaries just to try and understand, you know, what actuarial studies were all about. Um, and then also, you know, I think just having dropped out of university, I. I didn't want to be a university dropout and so I was always looking for some opportunity to study something. So I think with that desire and just some peek into some actuarial content that I found interesting um, made me decide to study actuarial science. But I must say at the outset my intent was never ever to qualify. I really wanted a tertiary education, and I, I set my sights on just achieving all of the intermediate subjects because it seemed like that would sort of be the equivalent of a university degree. Um, so I applied to ASA for membership, and ASA would you know the process was that ASA would then make a recommendation to the Institute of the Faculty of Actuaries, which is the body through which we achieved the, our qualification in those days. When I submitted my application, um, ESSA didn't quite decline my application, but it was also not accepted. I needed to do first year university maths and I needed to pass that, um, you know, achieve a minimum pass mark. So I registered at UNISA, did the first year maths, I um, met the criteria, then resubmitted my application, and it was accepted by both um, ESSA and the Institute of Actuaries. Um, I remember I started studying, I think it was about six years after I matriculated, and I wrote my first exam and I failed. Um, And yeah, it it was sad, but that's basically how I got started. So all in all, you know, the journey hasn't been an easy one. It's been challenging, um, but it's also been interesting and rewarding in some respects. Um, I've, I've had people support me, but I think also with my background, I've had some critics who didn't quite think that I would succeed at this. I had my three girls during that period as well, uh, and I don't think I would have been able to qualify if I didn't have the support system I had in place. Um, you know, I failed as many times as what I passed, um, and but I think also being in a work environment where you know others were also on this journey, my colleagues were also studying, and I did work that I enjoyed at least most of the time. So I think that just also kept me going. But towards the end, I must admit, I got really tired. I was really, really struggling with my last subject. It eventually took me about three years to pass my last subject. But I was really tired. You know, my kids were growing up. Um, I, yeah, and I was discouraged and demotivated. And I also thought, you know, I've, I achieved more than what i had initially set out to do because I, you know, I sort of passed all my intermediate subjects. Um, but my mom and my husband were the two people who wouldn't let me give up and after 14 years, I qualified. So I just thought I'll share a little bit about, very quickly, um, you know, some things that really kept me going during 14 year, during the 14 years, because I know it's a long time. I think, first of all, I had a compelling reason to study. I really, really, really wanted a tertiary education. I did not want to be a university dropout, and I wanted to raise the standard for my girls, and I think that really drove me. I think secondly, um, I enjoyed the work that I did, so I had some job satisfaction. And um, I I think it's really great that, you know, employers actually recognise you for the progress that you make. So I think that, together with the fact that I I enjoyed what I did, I think it just helped it or made it easier to stay the course. I think thirdly, if I had to set my sight on qualifying, I think I would have given up a long time ago. But that wasn't my goal. My goal was really just to, um, you know, pass all the technical subjects. Um, and I think just um, aiming for that made me focus and it helped me to eat this big elephant piece by piece. And then lastly, you know, I mentioned that I've, uh, I had some critics, um, but I knew in my heart of hearts that I could do this. And what I found is, you know, if you set yourself on a certain course of action, Um, It's not what others believe that actually becomes important. It's what you believe. Thank you.
6: Thanks. My story is far less remarkable, um, but more reflective of most of you in the room. Um, My father was an engineer. Um, He worked in a utility company whose name we no longer mention in polite company. (laughs) My mother was a primary school teacher. We moved around in Pumalonga a lot. Um, By the time I was 24, I'd lived in 24 houses. We had the most remarkable maths teacher, Mrs. Twyford, in a little school in Whitbank. In grade 7, we got six of the 36 gold medals in the maths Olympiad. Three of the male medalists lost track of each other and found ourselves in the infamous Professor Boyd Lorenz Curve Tut at WITS studying actuarial science. We don't know what happened to the female medalists, but it says something about math's gender stereotyping. My father passed away when I was um, in primary school and so conventional wisdom was that I needed male influence so I left my mother and my sister and joined Pretoria Boys High as a boarder. For those non-Khauteng people, the people that Lasani congratulated for being here early this morning, Boys High is one of those big schools established by Alfred Milner just after the Second South African War uh, modelled on the um, English public school system. Um, It's more of a sporting academy. We have two current Springbok cricketers, uh, the most capped Springbok rugby player and a Paralympian with anger issues. (laughs) Stephen Jerish once said that he thought that 80% of actuaries come from 20 schools. When I was at Liberty, I was one of eight fellows, um, so there may be something in that. So alongside a slightly older Elon Musk, who none of us really remember from the school, I think we do okay academically. So looking back at my journey and as an actuary, I can certainly see that Chance played a big role. I could be in a very different place otherwise. But from a humanities perspective, I certainly recognize that I'm here today because of who I am. So then the question is, what do you do with that good fortune? Many like me have chosen to emigrate to try and protect or maintain that that position of privilege. But I'm proudly South African and I believe I need to pay it forward. I was really inspired by an Asaba talk where Zuelan Zima Vavi sort of really got the audience thinking about what their duty is to society being smart people, and he cautioned about the behavior of a young firebrand youth leader wearing a brightling who now has um, a pension for, for red berets. And so luckily I can do this as part of my job. I spend a lot of time trying to address the key problem that we have in our society, which is the income and, and wealth disparity. And so there's a lot of time spent with legislators and regulators around trying to fix our pension system and in the Nedlack Chamber, which can be exceptionally draining. In my private time, I'm a financial director of a a game farm in the Greater Kruger Park looking to protect our fauna and flora and a council member of an amazing school in Orange Farm, Musselbombarning College, which does win gold medals, but we'd like some more. So to finish off on a relative basis, we as actuaries, produce or or South African actories globally certainly punch above our weight. We are certainly one of the top professions and we attract a diverse range of very inspiring people like the three individuals on the stage with me. We need to harness our different skills and our talents, unite behind our common profession and maintain not only the standing of this profession, but to build and grow our society.
1: Thank you to, to the panel here. Um, it wasn't planned, but we have a few minutes to spare before we have to move to the next session. So if there are any questions, um, I see one over there.
0: Good, good morning, everybody. I hope you can hear me suffering from the flu. Um, this is a question for Spain. Um, I just wanted to ask, you know, being black, there are five million funerals, tombstones, celebrations, and everything else. And being a black female, there's an expectation to technically be at all of them. Did you get yourself excused? which And how? Um,
5: <laughs> <laughs>
0: and sort of how did you deal with having to explain that you need to be studying, you can't attend every single thing, and you can't be working all the time because, you know, you've still got this as a responsibility.
1: Just, just press the button to turn it on.
5: Thank you for a question. Uh, I think in general, as a, as a human being, besides just being a black person, you have to realize the limitations of what you can do. And that's what I, I, I realized very young. Uh, you can only attend what you can, and when it's time to focus on what you need to focus on, you need to make it clear. And uh, you communicate it very clearly and often enough, and people will generally understand, because you're not only doing it for yourself, but you're also doing it for the good of your family, and for the betterment of your community.
1: Thank you. Any other questions? Well, thank you very much to, to the panel here. I, I have to say I'm both awed and inspired by your stories um, because I think it, it really does show that there is hard work but some people have more challenges. And uh, Speh and Jasmine in particular, I've, I've heard Jasmine's story a couple of times and every time I hear it, I'm inspired again. So congratulations to you. You inspire us and thank you for that. And uh, with that, I am going to end the session. There is a fifteen-minute transfer time. Uh, It shouldn't take you fifteen minutes to get from this room to that room. Um, But uh, yeah, so that is the next session starts at uh, at half past. uh, Sorry, where is it? We're now ten thirty in the room uh, ballroom one. Thank you very much.